So, I think it's safe because I'm pretty sure Santa's on vacation because I have a grievance with him. So, I got a problem with Santa Claus. You know, you, we, we, we know the story, you know, Santa Claus keeps this naughty and nice list and if there's, if you somehow get more nice than naughty or something like that, then you get gifts. And apparently, the level of gift, at least the way the system's supposed to work, is dependent on how, how nice you are. Um, and of course, these gifts magically appear on, on Christmas. I got a problem with that. And here's some of my problems. And I'm not going to tell you I thought about this as a child. As most children, all I cared about, I was getting something. It didn't really matter who it was from or why. But it's just that I got something. But as I started to think about it, I won't tell you at what age I came up with this formula, but I was trying to develop the algorithm for how nice I actually needed to be. So um, I think I have it here. Apparently, nice plus belief. You had to, have, you had to believe in Santa. If you didn't believe in Santa, it, it threw the equation out. If that's greater than naughty, then you got gifts. Should say equals gifts, right? But if your niceness and your faith was less than your naughtiness, then you either got coal, or you got no gifts, or you got underwear. That's those. Those are the things you got if you didn't make it. So, say, you know, say equation. This was Santa's way, and always kind of bothered me, you know, because. And you think about you know, what's wrong with that. What's wrong with it is we're never given any like, scale. We're not, you know, how nice do I need to be? When do I need to start being nice? December 26th? Or can we just start December 1st? December 24th? How nice? How good? By the way, what does it mean to be naughty? What does it mean to be nice? Is there a list? Things that I can be sure and check off? And who really calculates this? Who's figuring out how much this is, each one is worth? Is the Santa believe in absolute truth? Or is he some kind of relativist? You know, he just kind of makes it up as he goes. And it used to bug me when I was a kid because, you know, you would see the kid that you knew was like the punk kid, the kid that caused problems at school. And then what would happen? He would have the nice new bike. And you'd be like, really, Santa? What's going on here? Why did that kid get the bike? He's clearly the meanest kid in school. He's the punk. He's the one the teachers don't want to teach. They wish they could run away from him. They're so happy they want to have parties when he's absent. And he got a bike. Who's doing this? Even at that age, it seemed rather arbitrary, unfair. And then there's not really a punishment. I mean, yeah, I guess it's kind of a, sort of a punishment that you don't get a gift when everybody else is, but it's not really a punishment. It's not like you're going to get, you know, time out or spanked or anything like that. It's, it's just, oh, you're not going to get this good thing. Hard to figure out what Santa's talking about when he's talking about naughty and nice. 
And really, what do you really even need to believe? Some general, vague understanding of Santa? But you know, I think this story of Santa, I think it, it's a story that resonates with, especially so many in like Western culture. And the reason is, is because it's the kind of religion that we would create. If we could create a religion, we would do one just like this. We would have some sense of right and wrong, even though we don't define it. We just kind of have a nice and naughty list. There would be obvious reward if you can be nicer than you are naughty. And we would, you know, be able to slide the scale back and forth depending on situations, who the person is, and what we feel about them. And why do we like religions like this? Because religions exist for one main reason. Religions exist because they're trying to give us some kind of control in a world that seems out of control. And this is true from long, long time ago, from you know, times, prehistoric times, that you know, where these people would be living in these in these different cultures or societies, and, and they would see like weather seemed predictable sometimes and then unpredictable. How can I make it more predictable? Because my, my survival depends on it. The survival of my family, the survival of my, my, my village, it all depends on, you know, this controlling this weather. They want control. And we like this because it gives us some sense of control. I think it also is the kind of religion we'd create because we like religions that are all about us. We like religions where we somehow get something, we get something out of it, and we get to somehow prove that we're good enough. We get to prove that we're, that we're worthy of receiving a gift. And we like that. We, we want a religion that gives us control, that pats us on the back when we do good things, and it, and, and it you know, allows us to somehow work and do something to do what's good. We like that kind of religion. In fact, we even like this religion more because, as most moms and dads know, the kind of Santa religion that's out there allows you to control your children, right? See, it even gives you control over other people. Well, that's my problem with Santa and his way. It's really my problem with all religions. All religions that would exist for this reason, that would exist to give us some sense of control, that would exist to say that, you know, you're good enough, you just have to prove it. Prove that you're good enough and God will reward you. Religions that, that people used to control others. Well, it's not that, it's not what Christianity is. It's not what we read in the Bible. And we're going to unpack a little bit of this today. Because I think we live in a world where even a lot of people who don't want religion anymore, they think religion is for, you know, kind of people that are uneducated or unenlightened and they don't really know that we need to leave that behind so we can move on into the future. Even those people 
even those people, by and large, they want to be good. They want to be thought of as good. Even if their definition of good might be different from your definition of good, there's still something in us that fundamentally wants to be considered good by somebody or a group of somebodies. But the thing is, is that we really just want to be not good. We just want to be good enough. We want to be good enough so that we feel okay about ourselves. We feel like we've done enough. And we don't really want to be good. Because when we understand what it requires to be really good, the price is too high. And most of us don't want to pay it. We're like, no, I don't, I, it's, I'll, I'll just go with this other good enough thing. Because if, if Santa came along and he said, you guys have been doing it all wrong. It's not a naughty and nice list. That's a, that's, that's a made up thing about me. Here's the truth. I will only give gifts to those next year who from this day forward only do good and only do, do good motivi- motivated by the purest of hearts. And if you make one mistake, there will be no Christmas. You know who would be so sad if that happened? All the people selling gifts, right? Because it'd be like nobody would be giving gifts because no one would deserve it. It's an impossible standard. The price is too high. We want it more manageable. Well, we're going to look at this text. It's in the book of Ephesians. And, you know, we've been doing the Christmas story and Christmas series, and, and it's like, boom, jumping to Ephesians. And this text is, as we talked about when we had our Wednesday night Bible studies, we talked about this great mystery, and we did a sermon series on Ephesians earlier this year. We're talking about the great mystery. This great mystery that, that Paul is letting these, this church at Ephesians know, and he's telling them this is the great mystery. The great mystery is that what Jesus Christ came to do was tear down all man-made walls. All the man-made walls. In Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There is no male, there is no female. There is no slave, there is no free. He wasn't saying there was none. He's just saying he's torn down the walls. That we, that we can all be one, we can all be equal before him. This is the great mystery. And as he's explaining this great mystery, he wants to say this is why it's possible. It's not enough just to tear down the walls. If you tear down the walls, a lot of times people will still act like there are walls. They will still live imprisoned even though the walls are gone. It's not just about tearing down the walls. Something had to happen to us. And that's what this text talks about. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, you go back to the beginning of this text and it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What it tells us is that that God's way, not Santa's way, but God's way begins with God's great love. Begins with God's great love. His motivation is, is love. And he does it because it's who he is. The Bible tells us in 1 John, God is is love. Not love is God. We don't worship love. But what's essential to the character of God is that he is love. And it's not simply that he loved first. There's a truth in that he loved first and that he loved before we loved. But what we have to understand about God is that God... His love is such that he has loved always. Always. From before time began, he loved. And he will always love. God's way begins with God's love. And because it begins with God's love, we have to understand that What's central to what Paul's talking about here and central to God's way is grace. You see, this goes against the Santa way. The Santa way says, keep your nice list longer than your naughty list. But when we talk about grace, when we talk about this is God's love always, before we were even created, It's not about lists that we keep. Grace says you cannot earn what God is offering. You don't deserve it. It is his love and it is his grace. You see, that's the, you know, the struggle that we have in, in our world today. We have a world today that, that kind of lives in this, I want grace for me, but justice for everybody else. And that's the way you, you know, tear apart societies. Or, I want grace for me and people I agree with, or people that I like, or people that I think are victims, but I want justice for everybody else. God says, no. He says, no. He says, if everyone received justice, then none of us would exist. Justice, what is a just punishment for a God who loves, and he loves, and so he creates, and he creates among his creation a special creation, And he gives them the ability 
to make choices. And one of the first choices they make is to say, God, we want to be equal to you. We want to be better than you. And if we can't have that, we're going to go our own way and we're going to abandon you. We're going to do our own thing. In fact, we're going to, we're going to make our own gods. And at some point in time, when our own gods fail us, and because we're too stubborn to return to you, we're going to decide there must not be any gods because our gods have failed us. Our fake, made-up gods have failed us. So there must not be a god. In fact, we're going to do the opposite of what you created us to be and to do. If God gave... God gave humanity justice, we wouldn't be here. But he extends grace. He extends grace. And he does it for different reasons. And I don't have time this morning to unpack all of the intricacies of his plan. But as I've said on multiple occasions, that that God is... He's calling us together to be this this perfect society. This perfect society of of people who have that, who have faith, but that faith has has changed them in such a way that that they now have that same love that he loved, that he has. And that that they, they have that same grace that he shows. And he's calling, he's calling together those who would do that. But he is saying in making the first action that if he does not do something, it is not possible. The best of us can try the best we can to be good and we will eventually fail. We can try our hardest to come together as a community on our own merit, and we will eventually fail. We need Him. We need Him to love us first, to love us, all, to love us always. We need Him to begin the process. And that's what it says there. It's impossible because in verse 5 it says, we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our trespasses. And in that time, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God's love, the love that he always has, leads to a way of salvation. We went our own way. We rejected him. We wanted to live on our own. We wanted to create our own God. We wanted to do our own thing. God says, I'm going to make a way. We could not, we could not come back to him. In fact, even if we could, we would not. You see, to love like God, to love with pure love, you have to love devoid of selfish motives. 
You have to love in such a way that you are not thinking about what you are going to get out of it. To love like God. We talked about this uh, in November when we were you know, looking at the passage in Luke when, when, when Jesus said, hey, rich dudes, don't invite other rich dudes to your house for dinner because when you do, you know you're doing it because they're going to invite you to their house. You know that if you invite them, they're going to invite you, and then there's somebody else from that one's going to invite somebody else. And so this investment in one dinner with your rich friends is going to pay off with 10 more dinners with 10 other rich friends. He said, no. Have a dinner with people who cannot repay you. Who, with people who, who cannot do anything for you, who cannot invite you to their house, cannot feed you the same kind of a meal, invite them to dinner. That's God's love. And it's not just something we do once in a while. It's not just, oh, Thanksgiving, we're going to go help some uh, homeless people by feeding, you know, helping with some feeding uh, dinner at Thanksgiving. No. It's all the time. It's always loving that way. And it's impossible. And we certainly could not love God that way. We could not love God unselfishly. In fact, when we come to Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, we don't come to faith in Jesus Christ because we're pure and selfless. We come to him because we're, we're so needy and we're so gripped in our own selfishness. And God uses that selfishness to draw us to him. Because we, 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 we realize we need what he has. We don't like living this, this life without peace. We don't like living this life without joy. We don't like living this life without love, without grace, without, without purpose. We don't like it. We, we're that way, and some people look at us as being bitter and angry or just kind of soulless, and we've kind of accepted it, but we, deep down inside, we don't like it. We don't want it. And we hear that Jesus can give us all of this. But we don't really love God at this point the way God loves us. Because we're still coming out of what we need. But what happens is that when we have true faith in Jesus Christ, when we have true faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is this. We're changed. First of all, we're forgiven. And we're forgiven in the way that, that Jesus doesn't keep a naughty and nice list anymore. He just says, you're mine. You're my child. You receive the gifts I offer you. We're changed because we're forgiven. But we're also changed because we receive God's Spirit. And the main way that God's Spirit is shown in our lives is that we love the way that only God can love. We love the way only God can love. 
We get forgiveness. We get His Spirit that allows us to love the only way that only God could love. We also receive, as the Bible tells us, eternal life. You see, one of the problems with us being able to love God unconditionally is that we live under the curse of death, the fear of death. And so, so many of our decisions that we make are made based on that. They're based on how do I live longer? How do I delay death? How do I strengthen my position? And so if people are making friends, are they making friends from purely altruistic reasons? Are they just making friends to be friends? It's hard. But here's what God does. Here's what he promises. When he gives us forgiveness, and it's once and for all forgiveness, and he gives us eternal life, and it's once and for all eternal life, he frees us now. He frees us now to be able to love him with no selfish motives. I don't, I don't love God now at this point. When I have faith in Jesus Christ and he gives me all these things, I don't love God so that he will keep loving me. I don't love him because I'm afraid he's going to take, he's going to take eternal life away or he's going to take away forgiveness. No. Those things have been given to me. They're mine. I can now love him simply to love him. I can now love you and love other people, not because of what other people or what you're going to do for me or how you're going to help me, because God's already given me those things that matter most. I'm forgiven and I'm no longer under the curse of death. I can love, and I can love freely. He says, we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The world likes to talk a lot about faith, and they talk about the importance of faith. But a lot of times if you watch movies or you watch TV um, shows or you read books or listen to songs, they rarely will specify who you should have faith in. They just say faith. Have faith, have faith, have faith. And it's almost like you get to pick what to have faith in. But what Paul is telling us here He's telling us in verse 8, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not just faith, but it's faith in Jesus Christ. And who is this Jesus? Well, we could spend all of 2019 simply talking about who this Jesus is, but in summary, Jesus, you know, what do we need to believe about Jesus? We have really have faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. That he's equally God. He's not a different God, but he is the Son of God. And that Jesus came and here and lived this perfect life and he died for the sins of the world. We also have faith that, that he rose from the dead. And this isn't a 
figurative thing that he did, or it's, it's not that he was resurrected in the memories of his disciples or that his teachings were resurrected, but that Jesus bodily resurrected from the dead. That is the sign of eternal life. And because of that, we will also be resurrected. Paul will write in another letter in Romans, if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And it's not magic words. It's, it's faith, but it's faith that, that does something to us. It's faith that goes somewhere. In Galatians 5-6, Paul again will write, nothing else matters except this. Faith expressing itself in love. You see, faith that just stays faith is not really worth anything. But true belief in Jesus Christ, through that faith, God does something to us that allows us to express that faith in love. That that love that can only come from God, that's impossible for us, can come through faith. But it's not faith in faith, and it's just not an arbitrary faith or a general faith, but it's faith in Jesus Christ. And it is through faith in Jesus we receive the Spirit, and we can love the way that God loves. And in so doing, God does the impossible. He makes His love through us possible. And then, and only then we get down to verse, you know, we get down to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, when we finally get around to doing nice things, God's way is different than Santa's way. Santa just tells you, try harder, try harder. If you got a lump of coal in your stocking this year, try harder to be good. God's way is saying, you're never going to be able to do it just trying harder. It has to begin with God's initiative of love. It has to go through Jesus Christ and his cross. We have to have faith. And from that faith, we can do the good works that he prepared, that he's prepared for us to do before. It says beforehand, before we even came to faith. We can do the good works. So the niceness is not something we generate. It's not something that we try to do. It's not some, some standard we're trying to reach. That's Santa's way. God says No. Begin with Jesus. Faith in Jesus. That will be expressed in love. That will lead to good works. I think I have an equation. So you have Santa's way up there on the top. And, and it always says, somehow my niceness has to outweigh my naughtiness. But God's way says, no, it really has nothing to do 
with your niceness or your naughtiness. But it has everything to do with your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you have true faith in Jesus Christ, you will be able to love the way that God loves. And when you love the way that God loves, you can do good works. You see, what the Bible tells us is that you really can't do good not in the level that God expects. In other words, you can't ever add anything to the nice list unless it's motivated, saturated in God's love. Not just your love, not just your good feelings, but God's love. And see, here's what Santa, here's what Santa didn't do that God does. God defines love for us. He shows us love. Part of the reason Jesus Christ came was to show us love, to be this great example of love. He defines what is good. It's in His Word. He tells us, you know who should be on the naughty list? Everyone. But I've made a way that we don't even have to deal with nice and naughty and he doesn't do it by just saying, oh, ho, 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 I'm going to forgive everybody and everybody gets a toy this Christmas. No. He says a penalty has to be paid. And my son will pay the penalty. Justice will be met, but you won't pay for it. And you don't have to keep coming back every year trying to show us your good works. He says, no. His sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice once and for all. Well, here's the question. Why? We got God's way. We got Santa's way. Okay, I get it. God has this way. Jesus, faith, love, good works. I get it. But why? The reason is simple. Because this is God's plan for helping humanity be what He created humanity to be. He created humanity to be His kingdom. But what is His kingdom? His kingdom is, is a community of believers, a community of disciples. We've been talking about discipleship here at the church for the last two or three months. And we're going to talk about it for all next year. Why are we talking about it? Because it's at the very center of what we're supposed to be as a church. Jesus' some of his last words to us was to go and make disciples. We're supposed to be disciple makers. And to be disciple makers, we have to have been discipled ourselves. We need to be a community of disciples. And what is a disciple? Well, in a kind of earthly, worldly sense, a, a disciple is simply this. is someone who, first of all, is committed to learning something. Something, it's just a general word that means student. So committed to learning something. And it could have been anything in their time. But to be a disciple there was another qualification, is that you learned doing this something by living your life with the teacher. You see, discipleship isn't just acquisition of knowledge. It isn't just classes that we have. 
It isn't just one-on-one getting together once a week. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is when we come together to learn something specific. And what we're specifically learning is, what does it mean to be part of the kingdom? What does God have for us? How do I know His Word? How do I know what His Word says is good and right? How do I know how to be more like Christ? It's it's there. I, I need to know it. We come together to learn something specific. But that second qualification is really hard for us to do. And that is learning it by living life together. And it's hard for us to live life together. We have so many things going on in our lives. We, we, have, we have trouble trying to live life together. And it's the reality of our society. It's the reality of our times. And in that sense, we really can't be disciples of each other. I mean, the closest you can do this is in your family. Because hopefully in your family, you are providing discipleship, parents for your children. Because it's one of the few places that you can actually live life together. But we're really not called to be disciples of each other. We're called to be disciples of Christ. And that's why the Bible talks so much about Christ living in us. And that when Christ is living in us, he He is living life with us. And we are living life together. You know, I... I talk about discipleship, and I've given you a definition that I think is, is a pretty good one, otherwise I wouldn't keep giving it to you, and that is that, that discipleship is the, is the acquisition of knowledge, the gaining of knowledge that meets the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the knowledge and the Holy Spirit comes together to make us more like Jesus. A lot of words. And what I hope to do next year is to give... Some, some bite-sized things that we can look at. What are specific things that we can do? And I want to give you kind of a big one. Kind of a big one you can even think about now. How do I know, you know, if what, you know, what I'm doing is, is what God would want, if I'm, if I'm becoming more like Christ? How do I know? How can I evaluate these things? And, and again, it takes time, but at least I can give you like a little, you know, questions to ask. And the question you can ask is this, take anything that you do. And it can be coming to church. It can be eating dinner. It can be going to your job. It can be, you know, all kinds of things. And ask yourself this question. Does that activity make you more like Jesus? Or does it make you less like Jesus? Or does it really not affect one way or another? Just ask yourself that question. Does this make me more like Jesus? Does this make me less like Jesus? Or is there no real difference? It doesn't really affect me one way or another. The goal of the disciple is to have more and more things in our lives that we say, do, attitudes, habits, everything that's in that first category, more like Jesus. And it's to try to eliminate everything in that second, that second category, less like Jesus. And it's to really be honest about the ones that are in the, it makes no difference. What I'm doing, does it make me more like Jesus, less like Jesus? Does it not have 
any difference one way or another. You see, once we become Christians, once we have faith, we should want to know, how do I do these good works? How do I know what good works I should do? How do I know about this love? How do I know even who Jesus is? How do I know what it means to be more like him? I only have kind of a vague idea. Always comes back to discipleship. It comes back to learning together in such a way that the Holy Spirit meets that knowledge and continually transforms us to be more like Jesus. Next year, starting next week, we're going to start this journey. We're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount starting from um, Matthew 5 all the way through Matthew 7. Just take bite-sized pieces every week. Jesus is laying out in that sermon, what does it mean to be a disciple? What do disciples do? What do they think? How do they act? And we're going to walk with it, walk through it. I don't like Santa's way. I love God's way. Because it's not about me. It's not just about my peace and my joy and my purpose. It's bigger than me. It's really about Him and His purpose. And it's not about how nice or naughty I, I am. But it's really about who He is making us to be. That's my prayer for 2019 even for what's left in 2018. I hope it's your prayer too.